Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Ellen Helsper about her new book, Digital Disconnect, The Social Causes and Consequences of Digital Inequalities. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on the, on the podcast. Big fan. So it's great to be presenting my book. <laughs> it's great to have you. And um, it, it, it's funny talking about the perfect uh, kind of timing of a book. Um, obviously, academic books take take quite a while to write. But, you know, you couldn't have picked a better time to talk about digital inequalities at a point where, you know, certainly over the last kind of year or so, um, particular sections of the world have, um, you know, really become heavily or even more dependent um, on digital and digital infrastructure um, for the, I suppose, kind of conduct of their daily lives. And, and inequalities and an inequality um, perspective is, is really, really crucial to this. And I suppose before we get into the, you know, the, the sort of in, in individual themes that the book covers, um, it might be good to introduce the book um, just by saying a little bit about what kind of got you interested in writing about digital inequalities and, and I guess maybe the kind of the approach or uh, the kind of framework that you use to uh, to think through these issues. Yeah, well, I think in two ways, it's uh, it's timely, but it's also the result of a, a process of decades in, in terms of the interest that I've had in the research um, that I'm doing in my field. Um, so um, I've been kind of interested in um, identity and representation and feeling comfortable in a mediated world for, since very long. I started actually started by researching uh, things like uh, soaps and, and telenovelas in Latin America and how people felt represented and how their stories were represented in that space and how they felt comfortable um, in um, a mediated world. And then this mediated world became digital. Um, and um, in that sense, it's been these kinds of ideas around uh, representation and um, belonging in a world that is mediated, and in this case, uh, becoming increasingly digitized, have always been very important in my work. And um, uh, obviously, uh, since now in this kind of digitization of society, um, uh, our everyday lives in all its aspects are becoming um, represented or lived in digital spaces, um, this has become increasingly um, kind of the focus of my research to really look at the digital aspect of it. So the underlying idea of the book is a kind of, or the underlying framework of the book is based on um, the corresponding fields approach uh, or framework. It's uh, something I presented in 2012. And uh, basically that kind of, um, that kind of approach is the basic premise of it is to understand the links between social or historical uh, inequalities and digital inequalities, um, because in parallel to societies have becoming uh, more uh, digital, we have also seen an increased interest in what um, has been observed in many places in the world, the kind of increase in uh, or amplification of inequalities that have historically existed. So this, in parallel to the digitization of society, we've seen also um, an increased concern about um, uh, kind of increasing inequalities. And the premise of the, the corresponding fields model is that when people get access to information and communications technologies, they are actually most likely to use it to increase the resources that they already have and are less likely to be able to do so in areas or domains where they are uh, less well off. Um, 
And that's a slightly different model from or kind of approach from how digital inequalities have been studied so far in the sense that um, it's been a very descriptive approach in, in kind of noting which people are online or not online or engaged in certain ways or not engaged in certain ways. But there's been less theorization about um, kind of the specific ways in which which specific groups or which specific regions of the world might be more likely to um, be excluded from the digital space or not. And in the corresponding fields model, I identify kind of four broad domains of, of these resources um, where we've seen historical inequalities express themselves. So we can think about economic inequalities and including inequalities in, in terms of wealth and employment and education or um uh, the other domain that I look at is kind of social inequalities, which includes our everyday relationships, or kind of how our networks and how um, our uh, commu- the communities that we're part of, informal relationships, but also formal relationships and ties to other people. And then the third domain that I also look at is kind of more what we might call cultural, um, which is uh, kind of inequalities in terms of um, what kind of normative frameworks um, exist and, you know, around how... Uh, we should think or behave that puts people in a certain uh, kind of um, status position within society. It's often associated with different identity characteristics, such as gender or ethnicity or religion, Yeah, where we create kind of hierarchies based on what is valued, which ideas are valued and which are not. And then the last area or domain that I kind of identify in that model is um, that of the more personal resources, the, the kind of those things that are unique uh, to us as individuals, um, physical or mental health and personality intelligence. Obviously, I recognize that, you know, economic and social and cultural disadvantage and inequalities um, are often overlap. They are compound. A lot of people, uh, often we see that those who are disadvantaged in one of these domains also have disadvantages in other domains. But important in the corresponding fields uh, model is that uh, it really predicts, for example, if somebody has lots of um, uh, social resources. They have a really strong community that they're part of, really stable uh, kind of relationships, positive relationships in their everyday lives when they get access to technologies or when societies become increasingly digital, they're really able to take up these opportunities uh, around kind of socializing and, and connecting to others. Well, if these, same, if these same people who might not have economic resources, they might not be that wealthy. So this same access and the kind of skills that they acquire to use technologies are less likely to be translated into kind of economic outcomes in terms of saving money or um, getting uh, job opportunities or, or things like that. So that's kind of the underlying basis. It's really a theorization of the specific ways in which um, digital inequalities are linked to, uh, to social um, or historical inequalities. And um, one of the things that I discuss in the book is how actually these explanations for inequalities, for digital inequalities, or, or that process from social to digital back to social inequalities becomes increasingly complex as we start kind of moving towards um, areas that are currently less studied in the field of digital inequalities, such as these kind of cultural inequalities or uh, social inequalities in terms of the relationships that we built and the qualities of them, that the, that they become increasingly complex in terms of their explanations and also have been uh, understudied while the economic aspects of both social or historical and uh, digital inequalities have been studied much more extensively. One way the book, um, I guess, uh, populates the model that you've uh, sketched out there is is with these, um, I guess they're kind of like individual case studies of of, um, 
sort of whether we call them, you know, you know users or um, citizens, um, individuals. You know, there's there's a real kind of sense of um, case study uh, people that, that come through the book, and I was quite struck actually as you were talking me through the model there um, of you know the the kind of classic risk for academic models of you know sort of removing a sense of well, what is it like to experience this and, and I wonder actually if you could say a bit about um, why you adopted those individual case studies and, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about a couple of them as well. Yeah yeah so for each of these the book is kind of organized around these uh, five domains of, um, of kind of resources or uh, potential areas of uh, inequalities and um, well, the book presents a lot of uh, statistical, quantitative uh, research findings uh, uh, or data that have come out of the research that we're doing. Um, uh, it is, as you say, uh, really hard often for people to relate those statistics to the lived experience of what it is it like to be disadvantaged or excluded um, or vulnerable in a certain way in this digital society. What does it mean for our everyday lives? And so that was that was why I. Um, based on the qualitative work that we've been doing, included these um, five vignettes that kind of uh, exemplify kind of the specific difficulties that people um, uh, who lack some of these resources or who might be, have been come from groups that have been historically disadvantaged in terms of these resources, um, uh, kind of what their experiences is. So in the, I, I talk um, about Ben, who is uh, kind of an unemployed 42-year-old um, man, uh, you know, divorced, lives in the UK, and who has, uh, you know, has a kind of uh, is definitely in, in a kind of a traditional sense, or in a, objectively speaking, economically disadvantaged, um, and how his lack of connectivity or his lack of quality connectivity kind of leads to real um, problems in terms of how he's able to participate in an economic sense um, uh, in in society, be full citizen in that sense. And then um, in the in the chapter that uh, discusses the kind of more um, educational or learning opportunities that are available within digital uh, societies, um, I talk about Anna, who lives in uh, Los Angeles, and um, a twenty-one-year-old. She dropped out of school. She had a kid quite young, and uh, you know, like who works in a supermarket, but does want to kind of improve her opportunities by getting education through technologies. But there's all kinds of barriers that she faces in trying to do this because of her lack of formal education or exposure to these kind of learning moments. And then we have uh, Priya, who um, who is uh, kind of the kind of vignette or case study for the chapter on civic engagement. Um, who is, uh, lives in Kolkata as a 55-year-old uh, married woman from a relatively higher caste, but, you know, um, she has a disability and is, um, and is obviously, in this case, uh, a, a woman who, in a society where there's still very big gender inequalities, especially in terms of how to participate politically. Um, and then uh, we have Carol, um, who comes from Sao Paulo, um, and she's a 17-year-old, you know, it's kind of one of these people who you would say this is a digital native living in a big, um, big city. She's doing well at school, but um, she has, uh, you know, bullied offline um, and um, is kind of socially isolated. And that has all kinds of consequences in terms of how she experiences the social aspects and is able to take advantage of the social aspects of um information communication technologies uh, such as the internet and then in the last case study or vignette that i use is um uh, that i discuss is uh, Yun Wen, 
from uh, from in China who is a um, a gay uh, man uh, living in a not in one of the big uh, East Coast cities, but twenty eight year old. He's take care of his parents, um, but now is kind of. Um, um, you know, stuck in the village where, or in the town, it's still a big city, where he is living, um, where there's not a lot of people uh, like him. Um, he has an ethnic minority, uh, a vivid gamer online and DJ, but the, like the kind of way in which he can express himself in the digital space based on uh, these uh, kind of offline characteristics and his offline life is, is very limited and he feels like he's pushed into presenting himself and his interests and his voice in a certain way in that space because of the expectations that people have of how somebody like him should behave and these all these case studies and these vignettes are are um are are kind of compilations of qualitative uh, research they don't actually correspond to specific individuals but they are um kind of express a, a collective experience of people that i've uh, come across and been uh, very lucky to have the opportunity to interact with and to hear how they experience this increased digitization of society. And um, they, they kind of highlight some of the, the barriers um, and the problems uh, that people uh, like them have uh, around the world and how also in, the, in that sense, the context of the country or the city in which they live kind of also influences their experiences, shapes their experiences, not just in this kind of physical analog world, but also in the, in the sense of the kind of the digital world that runs in parallel and overlaps as is embedded in that in, in these modern societies. You mentioned that the uh, these kind of ideal type case studies, um, along with the sort of more say structural analysis, gives sort of two broad um, elements to the book. One is the kind of the set of present problems, and then is um, some some future inequalities that, that you'd mentioned have you know sort of seen less attention, and, and I wonder actually um, as, as a good way of getting a, a flavour of both you know those two two categories which we'll we'll take in turn, um, but also given a sense of um, some of the inequalities that you're you're trying to write about. If you could introduce maybe the kind of the present issues, particularly the intersection of um, what I guess I'd call kind of access. Um, inequalities, so things that are to do with, um, you know, cost of computing or cost of devices. Um, You'd mentioned a kind of a civic engagement issue, but I was very interested in those, um, you know, economic inequalities and the way that in some ways the discussion obscures questions about skills inequalities too. Mm. Yeah. So this is a kind of... uh in a way, the way the the field of uh, the study of digital inequalities has developed over over the decades, the last two decades really is when when this um, field has really taken off, and uh, and and the book in that sense also follows this kind of uh, historical development, not just in terms of the domains of, of resources that we talked about before, but also in terms of the development of the discussions and the kind of um, ideas of the the most imminent or the most prominent problems and issues that we should be looking at and. In the beginning of this um, kind of the development of this field, we, we really talked about kind of this first level um, divides, which is really the emphasis on that word divide on who is online, who has access, who doesn't have access. Um, and um, and that is still kind of a prominent um, a position um, in, in policymaking and in research, especially in the global south, it has to be said. 
um, where the emphasis is really on making sure that people have access to technologies. And uh, obviously, this is important. Without access, we're not going to be able to use technologies or without kind of exposure to uh, digital technologies, we're not going to be able to uh, reap the benefits that they that they bring. And um, so... Um, but there is a step beyond that. Um, first of all, the kind of the way in which uh, we've talked about access in relation to these kind of economic inequalities is problematic because it's been often interpreted in a very simplistic sense in terms of just kind of any kind of access. But it's now become very clear that um, you know one access, one type of access, is not the same as another type of access. And we see that, for example, in many countries, um, having access only to a smartphone or with the smartphone as the main way of accessing the technology, that this does not allow you to take advantage of these opportunities that are available online in the same ways. Like we can just imagine, for example, trying to fill out a form or uh, uploading or creating a CV or, um, or um, you know, in an education setting, uh, doing your homework and writing an essay. Uh, the, the device is not necessarily made for that. Um, one of the things that we also see with um, these kind of uh, single kind of platforms, which is very much based around apps, um, is that um, they uh, they don't allow us to to learn by doing because they're very uh, limited in terms of the the flexible or the kind of actions that we can take. Uh, which, if you use, let's say, a laptop or a kind of a PC. There's much more um, room to play around to create things. That these are designed for us to participate, not just in a passive way in terms of using technologies that are um, with certain functions in the way that they were built, but also to kind of be creative and to um, contribute our own content. So there's a really problematic, first of all, problematic idea of, of, of how access has been um, operationalized in research, but also in policy where it's about giving off out devices without thinking about the opportunities for active um, participation that these devices bring. And then in many societies where we saw diffusion of kind of access to the internet and related technologies increase and be exponentially and actually inequalities diminishing in that sense, we saw that still there were quite large inequalities in terms of whether technologies were used at all uh, and in the ways in which they were used. So um, in the book, I also make a distinction between potential access, which is the kind of availability of these technologies in our environment and actual access, which is the use of these technologies when they are available, uh, which is not the same. It's another thing that we need to think about. But in terms of the skills, we really see that um, in the end, what makes it possible for us to take up the opportunities and avoid some of the risks that are there um, uh, or the kind of negative aspects of uh, technology use um, is this whether we have skills or not. And um, so and we can talk a little bit maybe um, later about what types of skills then you know, we should think about. But also, um, you know, even when we have access and we have skills, whether certain types of content are online um, uh, are available to us that are relevant to us, services, content, things that um, reflect our interests and our needs is another way in which we might be excluded from that digital space. So if we, even if we have access and we have skills, if what we need is not there or not presented in a way that is useful to us, then we will still not be able to engage in that digital world in that way. And so in the development of the, the field, what we've seen is that first level of uh, digital inequalities, which is around access, uh, which has been theorized, 
And people said, actually, that's not enough. It's not enough to just deal with access. Um, we then look at the kind of the second level of the digital inequalities, which is around the absence of skills or the lack of skills to be able to use these technologies in beneficial ways. And then uh, simultaneously, you know, the lack of content that's relevant or presented in a way that's um, useful to us. And, and then actually, um, and this is where we are now and, and what this book is really um, kind of framed around is the third level of inequalities, which is kind of systematic inequalities, um, not just in access or in skills or in terms of the content that's available, but in terms of the outcomes that people get um, from uh, the use of technologies or that, you know, the kind of uh, people's uh, increases or decreases in well-being, socioeconomic and sociocultural well-being in increasingly digital societies. And that is actually, for me, the most important point about this, because in a way, I'm not that interested in the digital aspect of this. And so throughout the book, I try to talk about social and digital inequalities as linked, because in the end, what is important for me is how um, the digitization of society um, might lead to um, the amelioration or the exacerbation of uh, historical inequalities as societies become more uh, digital in terms of, you know, um, social, cultural, uh, um, socioeconomic, um, and uh, social psychological well-being. It's the everyday um, kind of our everyday lives and how um, how um, we live those uh, that is important and the extent to which the digitization can either make that worse or um, improve that situation. So that's the kind of third level of uh, digital inequalities that we talk that I talk about in the book uh, and which. Um, which is kind of refers to the consequences of digital inequalities. So that's the kind of uh, sphere that uh, kind of uh, the debate that has been developing in the field and that the book is also built around and the ideas are presented along those lines. I, I, th- I think that is really crystallized perfectly quite near the end of the book, actually. Um, some of the, the final discussions were, were you sort of bring up a, a question and you've mentioned the kind of questions of representation and, um, you know, the issues of kind of who has access to making digital content as well as who uh, or, or what is represented. But, but this boils down to a, a, a question, which is a social question about, well, you know, who is given value um, in our digital world, you know, which, whether it's individuals or, or communities. And, and I'm really interested to, to hear a bit more about that question, actually, and, and where the book sort of indicates that we might end up kind of replicating some of our existing global inequalities about which individuals and which communities, um, which social groups, which nations are given value and how others, um, are, you know, continue to be marginalized, excluded, um, and, you know, precisely rendered valueless. And, and I'm really interested to hear a bit, a bit more about that. Cause I think at the end of the book, that really brings together, um, both, you know, the, the relationship between the social and the digital, but also, as you say, you know, where the field kind of is now in terms of its most um, contemporary debates. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, that is a, it's a very uh, a great question and a very complex question that I struggled with throughout the book to answer that in ways that are both give nuance, but also give some clarity um, to um, where we do see a potential for improvement. Um, and I think I call myself a um, kind of a um, kind of you know 
relative optimist in that sense, but uh, kind of uh, kind of with uh, with reason in in terms of uh, what the future might bring. And I think that's where it's important to distinguish these kind of more, let's say, economic and um, kind of um, um, uh, kind of meritocratic ideals of um, uh, kind of what uh, society, how society is shaped and what uh, could be important in terms of well-being. Um, so uh, what we see is that, for example, when we talk about inequalities in access, we see that the most important predictors of these uh, remain things like poverty and um and, and deprivation in an economic sense. So it's the people who have, um, you know, who, who are unemployed and have uh, lower levels of education and um, have had less economic opportunities um, that are less likely to have high quality access. And sim- uh, similarly, they are also less likely to have these kinds of um, kind of uh, basic technical operational skills to be able to use the technologies in ways um that might benefit them in terms of learning or future economic opportunities. And in that sense, when we talk about a potential future and uh, kind of the way it's going um, with the kinds of policy that are now being put in place, for example, and the kinds of research that is done and what it tells us to inform um, policies and interventions, is that there we can see that kind of individual um, economic interventions, so technological interventions can be quite um, useful and beneficial. You know, if, if the main cause of an inequality in access is uh, is poverty, then um, we, if we improve infrastructure and we um, provide access uh, or we lower the costs of, of getting devices uh, and quality devices, then that would be a part of the solution. Yeah, And it's a, uh, towards a more equal future in some sense of participation. The same thing is that if, if the main problem with, for example, these kinds of more uh, technical skills, these functional skills to be able to use technologies to kind of get your benefits or to get um, um, economic outcomes or to participate in um, uh, courses and learning online. If the main cause of that is the lack of, of training, formal training, then we can set up courses, we can teach, in, uh, we can engage individuals who, who lack these kinds of skills in um, in informal and formal learning opportunities. And these can be individual interventions. And, and in that sense, so there, there is some optimism. And if policies are designed in the right ways, and we see that in our research, if you have, if you reach the right kinds of people who lack these kinds of, um, opportunities in terms of access and, and, and skills training, they do help uh, improve the situation. However, as we go along in the book and we come to these more social, cultural and participatory types of inequalities, such as this kind of civic engagement, which is really about which, whose voices are being heard, who has the power to influence uh, the way our society is shaped, um, the kind of, uh, as we talked about, uh, the values um, that um, are um, top of the agenda, the kind of debates that are top of the agenda, the issues that people deem worthy to be discussing. And in terms of social interactions, the networks, the kind of feelings of belonging to a society um, in your everyday life, in your everyday community, but also in terms of what you see represented in terms of um, what types of content are liked and promoted and um, prominent in these online spaces, then we see that solutions become increasingly more uh, complex because they become increasingly less technical and simple. It becomes more collective um, in a way. It becomes less about teaching an individual skills, uh, which they lack, 
or with uh, not so much about giving an individual access to a device, but it comes much more about understanding these kinds of everyday processes around um, whose voices get heard and who is respected. Because what we see is that once people have access and skills, when they then enter into these um, kind of social communicative spaces or uh, communal spaces online, these public spaces that uh, independent of their level of skill uh, and their level of access, they are still much more likely to have negative experiences such as being bullied or being harassed or discriminated against when they come from groups that have been historically um, kind of uh, vulnerable or um, uh, or excluded or discriminated against. And so the solutions there have to be um, social <laughs> to a much greater extent than the ones in these areas that we were talking about before in terms of education and uh, and employment. Um, so because it's these these processes are more subtle, it's not so much, it's sometimes, sometimes it's explicit about, you know, kind of, the things that we hear about now about trolling and about, um, you know, um, those kinds of things. But really often it is through our passive use, through us liking uh, the things that are comfortable to us or that are normatively valued in the societies that we live in. And I give some examples in the book, for example, in the, in the chapter on inequalities in, in, in content, uh, creation and production or, um, and consumption. It's, um, it's, all of us together who create um, popular uh, content and often what is popular content is content that corresponds to what we expect people of certain backgrounds to produce. And then there's two things there where we can see the inequalities. One is in that the people who are most popular or the, the most prolific content creators still tend to come from very specific regions in the world and from uh, what have historically been more uh, prevalent, uh, uh, privileged, sorry, um, uh, groups, um, you know, and they, the, the people who come from privileged groups often have a wider range of content that they contribute to, not just content that is very relevant to what we might think of as their social cultural groups, but also they have a voice in, in, in framing um, other groups that they might not, let's call it, belong to or um, identify with explicitly, while the people who are um, not from those groups um, have to often have a, a much more limited type of content that they are able to produce. So, like we, like I give the example of vloggers, for example, um, where in the UK, if you look at the top fifty vloggers, you know about um, uh, 40, 43 of them are men, first of all, um, and then the seven women top vloggers in two thousand and eighteen. Um, most of them were beauty vloggers. So um, most of them were to do with uh, kind of uh, beauty products or, or, or kind of um, beauty kind of uh, topics. While the men, the 47 men, not only were they were there more men there, but they also um, were able to um, talk uh, about a broader range of topics, right? From sports to lifestyle, to fitness, to politics, to all these things. And so in these public platforms, what we see is that um, not only in terms of quantity are kind of certain um, privileged groups overrepresented, but also in terms of the kind of uh, nature of that content, it's, it's, it's in a way a stereotypical. And uh, so that's one aspect of it in terms of who gets valued 
um, just in a quantitative sense. And obviously, then that's what we get represented with, right? And through algorithms, we get represented with that, we click on it, and it kind of reinforces this kind of public uh, dominance of um, of these certain uh, life experiences and, and uh, views. But then the other side of it is, is that when um, people from less privileged or less uh, dominant groups in, in these societies do go in these online spaces and and, and participate, the reactions to it is uh, are often much more negative. And um, in the book, I, I describe um, in, in this kind of process in, in two ways. One is for Yun Wen, uh, the the Chinese young man who is um, a gay male who uh, you know who who is also a DJ and wants to be present himself in a certain ways. But then he realizes that when he goes online and tries to present himself in a certain way, which might not be stereotypical stereotypically gay, let's say, um, whatever that means uh, for the people who are in these online spaces. Um, he, it doesn't, he doesn't get heard. He doesn't get valued. Um, and so that silences him in a certain way. Like he just doesn't, he, he stops presenting himself like that. Or if we think about Priya in terms of civic participation, um, while she is able to uh, be online and she has skills and she is part of these spaces, for example, she, like there is, um, you know, her family has been involved in charities with uh, education for young girls. But when she makes political comments, she gets um, um, kind of um, told off. And that's something that she shouldn't be part of, like doing. That's not part of her status, especially not in terms of the kind of cost and this kind of uh, uh, class that she belongs to. And so in some ways, she gets silenced as well because of that negativity. And what we see is that people who come from these groups or who have these negative experiences might that go into what I call digital hiding or they go into safe spaces, which is logical. They go into spaces where there's other people like them, where they can share these experiences without fear of being kind of um, discriminated or um, harassed uh, because of the expressions of their identities. But what that means is that the public spaces that we all of us access, the kind of content that we all see becomes um, dominated by the kind of norm of the normative kind of ideal of a kind of a more dominant or privileged class while these um and and that people who come from don't come from these groups still get exposed to that content but that um the, let's say the 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 privileged uh don't get exposed anymore to other kinds of uh experiences or worldviews because these people have moved into these safe spaces and that content doesn't become um, as much part of the public domain. So in a way, we are all responsible for perpetuating and amplifying that. And through, obviously, the way that technologies work is through algorithms, through what we like and through what we click on and what we spend time with online, this is a kind of an amplifying effect. Yeah, And it's not to say that people who've, who are discriminated and harassed should be forced to go in public spaces and continue to be uh, harassed, right? It's not about saying that it's the people who have been uh, kind of put, put in this position of vulnerability that need to sort it out. It's actually the other, the opposite argument that I make is that this is a collective responsibility. And that is actually often these processes of exclusion are not conscious in a way. Of course, we have, you know, examples, especially in recent times of explicit discrimination and trolling, but it's often kind of implicit. We don't even realize that we are more likely to like um, content that corresponds to uh, what we think is appropriate um, uh, of a certain person who comes from a certain background. So I think th that's the kind of things that 
that happen processes and these are less explicit and their the solutions to these are less technical right these are solutions which are about awareness creation this is where organizations like um civil society groups or um human rights groups need to uh, need to come together and realize that this is something that um that needs to be done uh, based also on the long experience that they have of collective action and uh, and uh, changing um, normative frameworks in wider society. Because in the end, we're not going to solve racism and sexism and homophobia or ableism online if they still exist kind of in in broader structural sense in wider society and if people are expressing those things in everyday life. There is kind of this vicious cycle that we're in and it cannot be broken just by a technological intervention. This really has to be um, kind of a more collective um, joint responsibility of people deciding kind of what kind of society they want to live in and uh, how our own actions and um, or consumption of content online might lead to the exclusion of uh, certain voices or certain types of uh, people and content in that digital space. So that's quite a complex and, you know, policymakers or, or even uh, kind of uh, researchers um, don't, don't often like it when you come with that kind of conclusion, <laughs> because that means that this is a multi-stakeholder, multi-layered, uh, complex problem where you need to think in the long term and not an easy short-term solutions, um, which is a very different story from saying, okay, um, let's give uh, cheap access and uh, improve infrastructure, or let's set up some formal training courses so that uh, people acquire these digital skills so that they can have jobs in this future that is becoming digital and where we need to slot in workers that will be able to do these uh, tasks within that digital economy. The things that I just talked about are, are much more complex and are really about what kind of, what is it that we value within uh, kind of our societies and that are reflected in that digital space. And that will need both technological and, uh, but majoritarily um, social um, policy and solutions. I mean, you've given a wonderful kind of um, spoken word illustration of um, some of the uh, diagrams actually that are in the book and, you know, the kind of the sense of the importance of interconnections, um, you, you know, both actually in terms of the corresponding fields uh, approach, but also in, in, in terms of the various different levels of, of divides that are going on in terms of digital inequalities. Um I mean, one of the other things that, you know, hopefully our, our conversation has, has made clear is just the richness of the book and, and the amount of um, both, you know, kind of detail that's in there for the reader, but the amount of topics and, and the kind of breadth of um, issues that are that are covered. And, and, and in that sense, it, it leads me to a, a kind of concluding question, which um, seems sort of slightly unfair given, you know, you, you've produced this really, you know, kind of comprehensive and, and, and absolutely, you know, important text. And then to say, so what are you doing next? <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, you know, what, what are you working on now in terms of, I guess, you know, maybe more things about digital inequalities, although you mentioned actually maybe, you know, kind of inequalities more generally is, is really the interesting thing rather than the digital per se or, or on its own. So yeah, what, what sort of projects uh, are coming next? Yeah, so um, all the work that is presented in the book is uh, kind of heavily based on the research projects that I continue to be involved in, which are um, uh, kind of at the moment um, two, two large international projects. One is the From Digital Skills to Tangible Outcomes Projects, which 
looks at these processes and really on how they're situated locally. Um, one of the things that I um, do in the book and that I want to continue to build on is uh, to kind of finish with the conclusion that we need to think about social digital ecologies. So the spaces that we live in, uh, we live our everyday lives in, this can be our neighborhoods, uh, but also our online uh, spaces and networks and really understand how these kinds of dynamics of our everyday environments kind of shape uh, the extent to which um, disadvantage of vulnerability is expressed. And, and that's an important part of also these from digital skills, the tangible outcomes projects is that's where we're taking it to look at these everyday ecologies, the social and digital environments that we, we live in and how they shape our engagement in positive and negative ways with technologies. So that's one important aspect of what I'm doing right now. And then the other aspect of it, which is really related to the kind of latter half of the book, which is about uh, really looking at more social and cultural well-being in uh, increasingly uh, digital spaces um, or societies, and then uh, really thinking about a future world in which these technologies are much more uh, going to be much more invisible and embedded. We can think there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence, obviously, but I'm thinking more in terms of embedded uh, re- um, AR, augmented reality, embedded uh, tech, um, things like uh, VR, which are becoming part of these kinds of uh, worlds where we live in, where the digital and the the kind of analog become much harder to separate. And I'm really there going back to where I started in terms of, you know, um, feeling like that you belong and can participate in equal ways in, um, in these kinds of social and digital spaces and to what extent our behaviors and our actions influence how comfortable others feel and how they feel heard and valued and appreciated. So really moving and expanding those kinds of last uh, two or three chapters in the books before the conclusions, which are uh, moving more towards thinking about spaces rather than use of technologies, thinking about engaging in digital spaces um, where technologies might not be that visible anymore. And uh, where therefore these processes are going to be much more difficult to study as a separate, you know, they're going to be about inequalities in digital societies and less about the links between social and digital inequalities, but more about uh, design and action and inaction within these digital spaces. Mm-hmm.